Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in and know that you are welcome. To the Nook and to Tales to Terrify. Yes, you hit the right button. I am Lawrence Santoro, and we have a treat for you tonight. Come in, though, and drop your weather gear and what weaponry you might have with you, and relax. Grab a treat, some chums, a cooling beverage, and just settle into the evening. Tonight, tonight, We'll have just story. Two stories, to be precise. Two tales by two masters, Felicity Dowker and Tim Wagoner. Story number one is by Felicity Dowker. Felicity is a Melbourne-based writer, predominantly recognized as a writer of horror, but who has worked in various genres. Her stories have appeared in Australian publications, including Borderlands, Aurealis, and Andromeda Spaceways in Flight magazine. She is a multiple finalist or winner of awards that include Ditmar, Kronos, Aurealis, the Australian Shadows Award. Around 30 of Felicity's stories have been published in Australian and international zines and anthologies. They include Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror, Volume 1. Felicity's debut short story collection, Bread and Circuses, was released by Ticonderoga Publications in 2012. Felicity says she hates blathering on about herself in bios and such, and so do we. So, we now will stop and listen. Listen, in this case, to Felicity Dowker's 
the female of the species is more deadly than the male. Waking up dying is the worst feeling in the world. I don't know where I am. There's light and noise and too many people, but all that matters is the air that I can't get into my lungs. The pain and the panic. I'm choking, clawing at my throat. Tears stream down my cheeks. A woman, she's all in white and has a little clock clipped to her chest pocket. A nurse leans into my narrowing field of vision. She takes my hands away from my neck, holds them firmly but kindly, squeezes them. We're moving, me being wheeled flat on my back, she running alongside me. Don't cry, she says, as tears slip from her own eyes. I see death in those eyes, and pity, and they both terrify me. My limbs are tingling and my head is buzzing, and I don't want this unknown woman to be the last thing I ever see. And there's no air. No air. Shh. Please don't cry. The car found me. I think that's the way these things always work. You can't just go out and buy something like that. It's not for sale. It smells you, it hunts you down, and then it owns you. I'd been home from the hospital for only a few hours. Dominic had just left for work. He was subdued, but given that he'd almost killed me, that was to be expected. Guilt seeped from his pores, sour and stale and it sickened me. Still, I comforted him. It's all right. I love you. It wasn't your fault. It was my choice too, and I made it. And the biggest lie of all. I'm okay. I couldn't help myself. I was the one with a bleeding hole in my womb and my heart, but I needed to make him feel better about it. Otherwise, he might leave me. All else beyond that unthinkable thought was panicky technicolor oblivion yawning open like a mouth waiting to consume me, a mouth lined with countless teeth. Anyway, the car. I sat at my computer to check my emails, looked out the window, and there it was in the driveway where Dominic's car had been less than an hour ago. My stomach twisted. But then again, it had been doing that pretty much nonstop since the procedure a week ago. My hands trembled on the keyboard, stopped moving altogether. Everything slowed around me, receding into obscurity, the car the only clear point upon which to look, and I did look. I stared at the car in a moment that stretched like chewing gum. It seemed I could hear faint music, or maybe it was whispering voices, or just the sly wind. I'm not a car person. I don't use words like beautiful to describe them. But this one was. Glossy black with a fat red stripe running the length of the roof. It was boxy and old in structure. Vintage. Large silver lettering just above the front bumper spelt Dodge. Dodge what? I asked my empty living room. Didn't those fancy American cars usually have cute names like Viper or Ram or Daddy Pays My Bills? Sunlight hit the car's windscreen and it flashed briefly, winked. I went to get dressed and investigate. The wind grew stronger the closer I got to the car. Or maybe that was my imagination. I was still a little feverish and weak from my brush with mortality, after all. 
Either way, I liked the cold. Always had. It reminded me I was alive. And the wind? Well, the wind was the song of life, akin to the first sound we heard when we came into consciousness, in utero, the relentless booming rush of our mother's blood flow. How do you get here, girl? I reached out and ran my fingers along the car's side. It was like rubbing a racehorse's flank. The duco stretched taut over the power that lay beneath. Or maybe it was more like the accidental touch of a large spider's hairy shell. That unexpected dark intimacy. Even over the howling wind, I heard the click as the driver's side door opened. I circled the car and slipped inside. Red leather bucket seats. Two red fluffy dice bedecked with white spots dangling from the rearview mirror. The steering wheel stark white. I was inside the beast. Everything was flesh and bone, and it felt like home. I reached for the ignition. The key was in it, of course, waiting for the touch of my hand. I inclined my head to look. Just a nondescript silver key, slotted snugly. Two charms dangled from the key. A tiny spider, black, with a red gash down its rounded back. A dye, red with white spots. Well, all right then. This was my car. Red back spiders were a totem of mine. They were black widows. Feminine power. The female of the species is more deadly than the male. Dice, too, were symbolic to me. Chaos, neatly contained, awaiting the flick of a wrist to decide how it manifested. Endless possibilities. Endless power. And endless responsibility. I hadn't thought much about these things in a long time. Six months ago, when my mother died, such self-indulgence seemed almost evil, and then there had been the dramas with Dominic, the slow suffocation that was my fear of losing him, and everything that had followed. No, I hadn't thought about myself in a long time. Not me, only the dreadful things that were happening to me, and all that I had lost, and might yet lose. I caressed the steering wheel. The car sighed around me. This whole thing should have been weird, but it wasn't. It was mine, and I deserved it, damn it. I noticed silver lettering in the center of the steering wheel. Had it been there before? I hadn't noticed it, and leaned in to read it. Warp. That felt right, too. This car was a Dodge Warp. I'm driving you, I told the car, and nobody can stop me. They might take you away later, but I'll survive when it happens like I've survived everything. Right now, it's you and me, darling. I grasped the key in the ignition, but the car's engine was already purring. When had that happened? I thrust my foot toward the accelerator, but the engine roared a moment before I made contact, the pedal dropping away of its own accord beneath my shoe. Fine! I found myself yelling the word, sobbing it, and my belly gave a dull thump of pain. I crossed my hands over it, hunching forward. I felt the bleeding start again seeping into the mattress-sized pad the hospital had given me. And what did it matter now? Except that it hurt. It hurt. Oh, it hurt so much. I wanted to wail for my mother, but she was nowhere. Gone. The double punch of absence hit me like a freight train, as it always did. That's fine. You drive. Take me where I need to go. You obviously know where that is, so do it. Go. And we did. My new friend Dodge and I slid backwards out of my driveway and spilled into the street like silk on wheels, 
A tight turn, and we were on the main road. The radio crackled into life. A woman spoke, her voice low and soothing. Lynn, the woman said. Lynn, are you listening? Yes, I answered, because that was me. Lynn Johnson, at your service. I'm Dodge, Lynn. Please don't cry. The combination of the repetition of my name and the woman's familiar voice was hypnotic. My head grew heavy, and I let it fall back against the headrest as we cruised the streets. We can go back, you and I. Go back and make a change. Everybody wants that. Everybody looks back and wishes they'd done something differently. Even those who insist they wouldn't change a thing only say so because they think they have to. Isn't that right, Lynn? Do you want to make a change? Yes, I said. My voice had a little slur in it now. You'll need to offer something in return, Lynn. Something personal. Something that means as much to you as the change you want to make. Dominic. That word was hard to say. The letters sluggish on my tongue. Yes, a good trade. A fair trade. Dodge's voice shifted. Became my mother's. I love you, baby girl. I miss you. I see what he's done to you, and I hate it. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate. My mother's voice retreated, and Dodge's radio let out a scream, an alien siren that felt like it would shatter my skull. Dodge sped up. The G-force pressed me back into my seat with hard fingers. My heart tripped and thudded. A jogger ran backwards past the car. The wind gusting outside was somehow inside the car, too, and it hit me from behind, fanning my hair around my face until I couldn't see. The blood pooling in the pad in my underpants ran back into me, hot and sensuous, pulsing. We were hurtling along, and just ahead, or just behind, everything was displaced in space and time. A red brick building loomed over us, careening through a dizzy blur of moments, a long Sunday morning in bed, Dominic's hand cupping my breast. Ouch! Me flinching away. Dominic propped on one elbow, raising his eyebrow, concern in his voice. Oh, how I loved his voice. You know what that means, Lenny, don't you? No. What? Pregnancy. Don't be ridiculous. That's impossible. Weeing on the stick alone in the toilet, the two pink lines right away. My hand shaking. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. The constant nausea and fatigue like nothing I'd ever known before. Lying on my back on the paving stones in the backyard, warmed by the sun, hands on my belly, smiling. Assuming Dominic and everyone else would share my joy. You said you couldn't get pregnant without medical help. You tricked me. This is your fault. What will my parents say? No, if you keep the baby, I'll leave. Or I'll stay, but I'll be an arsehole. I'll hate you. Dominic's beloved face, cold and hard as he said the impossible words to me, each one disemboweling me anew. The cold shock of his betrayal, the utter desolation, the fury at the cliché he turned out to be, the cliché he made me into as I cowered and puled, Dominic screaming at me not to make out to my friends that he was the villain in all this, my tearful pleas for him to stop, to reconsider, to be kind to me like he used to be, and to want his baby as much as I did. To understand. It was only six months since my mother died, and my doctor had told me I'd never get pregnant without help. The baby was a miracle, a sign. 
Please don't do this. I love you. The unbearable realization that he couldn't be swayed and I was losing him. Losing him. And he was all I had left. He'd been so good to me while I grieved. He was so special. Way too good for me. So wonderful. Usually. All the time. Except now, when it mattered most. My girlfriend asking me at work what I'd decided. My voice dull and monotonal as I replied. I just want it gone. Now, I want the pain and sickness to end. Since there's no point to it. Screaming inside. Save me. Save me. Sitting outside the red brick building, in the car with Dominic, him back to his gentle, caring self, but it was fake and frightened now, a grotesque pantomime. Are you sure about this? Me turning on him, unable to believe he'd actually had the nerve to say that. Of course I'm not sure. You know I don't want to do this, but what choice have you given me? The guilt marring his face, not strong enough to stop him, as he opened my door and led me into the clinic with his head bowed. Dominic paying half the fee, me paying the other half, because Dominic told me to. And then, oh no, don't put me back there. Everything slowed as I fell down completely into the darkness of a past so recent that I was still bleeding with its wounds. After a brief and tearful session with a counselor who seemed to find my grief embarrassing, Dominic and I spent an eternity on a sagging couch, staring at terrible Monet prints, studiously ignoring each other. And then, Lynn Johnson? I paused just a few moments, long enough for Dominic to make everything all right, to stop this, to put the knife away rather than cut out my heart with it. But he gave me a thin smile and looked away. We died then, he and I. I had tried so hard not to lose him. And in the end, he lost me. The tragedy was that neither of us even noticed. Ms. Johnson, are you ready? The nurse was looking at me, her face slack. She must see this every day. She had a button pinned to her chest. One of those irritating cryptic advertisements. Save time. Ask me how. No, I'm not ready. I don't want to do this. Dominic, please. Yes, I said. My body got to its feet and carried me towards the nurse. Away from Dominic. Away from myself. The nurse took me to a small white room, all tiles and metal, and told me to change into the white hospital gown she handed me. It was starchy and cold, and left my back and butt exposed. It had barely touched my skin when the nurse burst back into the room and led me, barefoot, down the hall to a large room. More tiles and metal, but this room also had a smiling doctor and a chair that looked like a torture device in the center of the room. Miss Johnson, the doctor gestured to the chair. I sat in it and reclined awkwardly, an enormous bright light hung above me like an artificial sun. Long arms extended from both sides of the chair, and my wrists were strapped to them. I was a criminal about to be executed by lethal injection. No, I was Jesus on the cross. I giggled, and then hiccuped. The nurse raised an eyebrow. Legs, she said, her tone cold now. She thought I didn't care. That was pretty damn funny when you thought about it, and I bit my lip to stifle further giggles. The crazy urge to ask the nurse exactly how she suggested I save time was overpowering. I slid my legs onto the stirrup-like holsters at the base of the chair, and she strapped my ankles down, roughly. Then she shoved my legs apart, and the doctor glided in between them on a rolling stool. 
spread-eagled, exposed, alone. Something big stood in my peripheral vision. A machine. The machine. I refused to see it, but still, the long hose jutting from the thing like a proboscis sneaked into my awareness before I squeezed my eyes shut. A needle slid into my skin like a serpent's fang, and I flinched. Countdown from ten, the nurse said, but she was already fading. I've changed my mind. I don't want to do this. I want my baby. But my screams were silent. My lips wouldn't move. My whole body was paralyzed. My eyes rolled back in my head and my eyelids fluttered closed. Everything was tingling floatiness. I felt the doctor's rubber-gloved hand on me. Then, I opened my eyes and sucked at the air, but it wouldn't enter me. It wasn't there. I gasped again and again. Nothing. It was so bright, so loud. My eyes and ears hurt. I couldn't breathe. My mouth tasted like rotten rubber, and my throat was full of something that burnt. Where was I? I had no idea. It didn't matter. I just needed to breathe. Lynn, a man standing over me. He was vaguely familiar. A doctor? Where had I seen him before? There was a complication. You vomited under anesthesia, and you breathed that vomit into your lungs. That's called aspiration, and it's why you can't breathe. It's triggered an asthma attack and it's also clogging your lungs. We're putting you in an ambulance to go to hospital. Do you understand? I couldn't answer him. He leaned in close. Don't worry. The procedure was completed before you aspirated. There are no problems there. This is nobody's fault. Just one of those things. He gave me a paternal smile. Oh, yes, that's right. I was in the abortion clinic. The doctor was gone. So was my baby. No problems there. Nobody's fault. One of those things. Where was Dominic? Not here. Never here. I wanted my mother. Wanted to scream mummy like a toddler who'd gotten a fright. But my mother was just a void now. Infinite. Formless and empty. I was nothing more or less than pain. Forever and ever. Amen. Nurses buzzed about me like bees stinging me with needles loaded with steroids to try to help me breathe. Ventolin was sprayed into my mouth over and over, so many blasts that my heart felt like it would hammer its way right out of my chest. Absurdly, a line from Stephen King's It flitted through my mind, something abstract to do with spiders and asthma. This is battery acid, you slime. My body convulsed so hard that my teeth clamped shut on my tongue, preventing further Ventolin onslaught. The nurses looked scared. Surely they weren't meant to look like that. They were like flight attendants, meant to smile and reassure, while the plane went down in flames. The ambulance arrived and I was bundled in. My stomach cramped painfully, and I felt warm wetness spurt between my legs. Air was finally getting into my lungs, just a little, but enough for the black pinpricks that had been dancing before my eyes to recede. As the panic lessened, my thoughts came rushing in like a tsunami. I clutched at my chest as a sob burst forth, a poisonous bubble exploding, filling me with canker. Don't worry, the ambo said, his face gentle. I know your heart is beating like a drum, but you can't really overdose on Ventolin. You'll be all right. I lost myself to crying then, and he let me be. Dominic arrived in the ER as they hooked me up to the antibiotic drip. 
His face was gray and unreadable. He held my hand and stroked my hair. I wanted to lean over and tear his throat out with my teeth. Instead, I turned my head to the wall and lay silent, letting him off easy, like always, you slime. He'll be here for about a week, yet another doctor, standing behind an orderly who had brought in a wheelchair to take me to the ward. You've got aspiration, pneumonitis, and you'll need high-dose IV antibiotics every few hours. No mention of the procedure. It didn't matter to anyone but me. Dominic went with me to the ward, sat by my bedside, read to me for hours from The Hobbit. It was a favorite book of his. Go home, I told him. Get some sleep. I'm okay. Liar, liar. He slipped out of the room with relief evident in his every movement. That night, and every other night, I awoke every few hours to find a tall male nurse who looked like a serial killer standing over me with a needle in my IV. In my dream haze, I was sure he was poisoning me, and always, always disappointed when I woke up in the morning, still alive. In the void, and the void is my mother, so I'm in my mother again, and she is in me, and so is something else, and it's safe here, but temporary, and she's speaking to me, the void is speaking to me. We're here together, in the timeless mess. And it's not a mess at all, not really. There are patterns, deceptively fragile in appearance, glimmering in the unlight like a web. And something with countless eyes and dripping mandibles rules this place. Something so black it's red. The female of the species is more deadly than the male. This is battery acid, you slime. Is this the change you desire? The trade you make? I nod, except I don't, because I have no form, but it's done anyway. Sitting at my computer again, gazing out the window, confused, cold. Had there been a car in the driveway? Was that what I had been looking at? I thought so, but there was nothing there now but red, black smears of oil glistening on the cement. Someone must have taken a wrong turn into the driveway and then gone again leaving my driveway cement stained, and I'd have to scrub it later. And in the meantime, I'd vagued out, taken a trip to La La Land, as Dominic used to say. Dominic. God, hadn't thought about him in months. It was strange, really. If I concentrated hard, I fuzzily recalled having cared very much about Dominic, once. But that memory was a deeply buried thing, already decomposing, and I couldn't touch it with any real strength because it crumbled to nothing when I tried. I never would have thought I could survive him leaving. But he had left. When, exactly? Where had he gone? I didn't seem to know, and it didn't seem to matter. And here I was. Here we were, alive, intact. I rested my hands on my swollen belly, feeling the blood swirling and rushing in there, my hands moving as my baby rolled beneath them. A girl... I knew it was a girl. I hadn't asked the sonographer who did my ultrasounds. I had specifically told her not to tell me the baby's sex. But I knew, all the same. I had known from the start, holding that stick in my hand with two pink lines, nine months ago. One line for me, one for my daughter. A tear tumbled down my cheek and splashed onto my belly. Not for Dominic. I couldn't remember crying for him at all. No. My tears were always for my mother, who wasn't here to meet her granddaughter, who died before I even fell pregnant. I felt her, though, 
I heard her voice on the wind that soughed around the eaves of this old house at night as I drifted into sleep and my daughter moved inside me. She waited for me in my dreams. My mother, frozen in time, always in her dressing gown and always smiling, holding her arms open wide, impossibly wide, wide enough for me and my engorged belly to snuggle inside. I was maiden, mother, and crone in those dreams, defenseless but safe in my mother's arms, heavy with child and body wisdom, and ancient with grief and mortality. I needed nothing more. Even my loss was a jewel that I wore with pride. It was a pretty thing, an essential thing, my blood-red heart, my ruby. But Dominic, he'd given me an ultimatum. Him or the baby. I'd chosen the baby. The details were murky in my mind. I suppose it must have been difficult at the time, but I felt none of that now, only mild amusement, like there was a joke in all of this that I didn't remember. But I still felt the mirth that accompanied it, mirth from a distance, almost like it was someone else's. The radio crackled into life in the kitchen, yanking me from my reverie. It did that often now. I really should call someone in to see to the house's obviously faulty wiring. But in a strange way, I found it comforting. Sometimes it felt like there was something here with me, and I didn't want it to go away. The radio was loud, though. I rose from the chair with difficulty, levering my bulk with straining arms and grunts of exertion. My back and hips ached, and heaviness bore down inside my pelvis. A welcome pain. Soon, soon, my little one would be born. I had my midwife on standby, ready to drive the short distance to my house when the time came. A birth pool sat fully inflated in the spare room. Everything and everyone was waiting, it seemed. But there was infinite time. I felt no sense of urgency. I cherished the time with my baby connected to me in the most intimate of ways. I didn't yearn for the severance that must come. I waddled into the kitchen. As usual, the radio reception was dreadful. The broadcast indecipherable, reduced to wordless whispering and animal shrieks. I was used to it, but it could still be quite spooky. I unplugged the radio. Simply switching it off didn't always work, and I was too big to be lumbering in and out of here over and over again to see the thing's noise. I went to my bedroom, drew the curtains, lowered myself onto the bed, and arranged the harem of cushions into the intricate system that was the only way I could lay comfortably now. Cushions bore the weight of my belly, and slipped between my legs, they balanced my hips and back. I closed my eyes, draped a hand over my belly. My baby's back curved against my palm. My skin was flush with heat and life. I relaxed as the wind murmured against my window, morphing into my mother's soothing voice as I flirted with sleep. Something tickled my cheek. I slapped at it drowsily, wiped my hand on my pants. I didn't open my eyes to check what it was. This old house was full of little spiders, as if somewhere a great mother spider had birthed. A half-asleep thought, that, and not one I liked. Just as dreams claimed me, I thought I heard the radio in the kitchen blast into life again, but that was impossible. My mother reached for me in the dream web that awaited me. Her arms were longer than I remembered them having been when she was alive, and her dressing gown had a fat red stripe up the back that looked like a wound on the brink of bursting open. But she was here, just like my daughter. All was well even the things that weren't, because I had chosen them. Dominic squeezed his eyes shut, 
pinched the bridge of his nose between his fingers, opened his eyes again. Nope, didn't work. He was still here. Wherever here was. But he remembered this place, didn't he? It was red brick, and there were overstuffed couches and overbright prints on the wall, and the sound of someone sobbing. They wouldn't stop crying. The sound seeping through the walls and crawling along Dominic's spine, infuriating and unnerving him. Can't you make her shut up? The words slipped from him before he could control himself. A nurse materialized before him, clipboard in hand. He wasn't sure how he knew she was a nurse, since she wore red and black rather than white, but he knew it nonetheless. She looked familiar, a smiling older woman with features he seemed to know very well, but he had no idea who she was. No, she said. Nobody can make her do anything now, especially not you. He frowned. I don't know what you... But he did. He'd lost someone. That was bad, but he'd done something. Broken something fragile. Trespassed somewhere terrible, and that was worse. Who was he? Where was he? He didn't want to know, but he did know. And that was the worst thing of all. This guilt. This regret. Dominic. The nurse brought his focus back to her. Tears seeped from her large hazel eyes. He knew those eyes. Please don't cry, Dominic. I'm not, he said, but he was. His face dripped with tears and his lips trembled, and he felt a terrible wrench of grief deep in his gut. Wetness stained his jeans, and looking down, he saw red slowly staining his crotch. He gasped, clutching himself, but there was no pain, as if the blood was a phantasm. Out, out, damned spot. This is how it was for her, Dominic. Still crying, the nurse ticked something off her clipboard. A radio thundered into life somewhere. No music, just alien screams. The cacophony not quite drowning out the sounds of nearby sobbing. Can you turn that racket down? Dominic put his hands over his ears, but they did nothing to muffle the sound. Something sharp pricked his palms. And as he snatched his hands away from his ears, two small objects tumbled into his lap, shining in the blood there. He hunched forward, staring at them. Little charms, a red-backed spider, and a red-and-white dye. Recoiling in a horror he didn't understand, he knocked the charms to the floor. The room didn't feel straight, didn't feel even. He felt seasick, unstable. Save time, ask me how, the nurse said. Please, Dominic whispered. It's just one of those things, nobody's fault, the nurse said, and she picked him up as if he were a thing made of feather and air. He flailed, yelling, but it was useless. She carried him down a long corridor, which twisted and tilted around them. Please, he whispered, I don't want this. Please, no. The nurse carried him into a room and dropped him into a chair. It was a hellish thing. A recumbent crucifix with sharp metal edges, and he immediately tried to leap out. Strong, sinuous restraints wrapped around his wrists and ankles. Raising his head, he saw with very little surprise that they were snakes, black things with bright red bellies. Something giant glided in between his spread legs, belching rancid smoke. Count to ten, the nurse said, standing at his side now. Then count to ten again and again and again. 
The snakes that held him in place hissed and darted their angry heads at him, their fangs piercing his skin. Hot venom laced through his veins, burning and pulsing. He screamed. The nurse leaned down, her face pressed right into his, and he saw the hatred and fury in her smiling eyes. Lynn's eyes. Lynn! He remembered. Oh, he remembered the squat, spider-like car that had brought him here. A glassy-eyed, unspeaking Lynn, standing constantly outside the vehicle, as everything around her somehow ran backwards. And he was sorry. So sorry. But mostly he was angry. And surprised. Somehow she'd done this to him. And how dare she? It's the forcing that did it, the nurse said. On top of all the pain she already felt, you pushed her. You broke her. A thing like that. That sort of warp echoes, Dominic. We heard it. We answered. The plunging, scraping thing between his legs clattered closer. Something sharp and hungry nudged his thigh. His limbs grew heavy, and his head fell back against the hard chair. The nurse's face filled his vision. And he knew her. Oh, yes. He knew her. Lynn had looked just like her mother. The spitting image. Somewhere else, some time else, a newborn's cries filled the early morning air. It was a good trade. Afterward, I wish to state firmly and unequivocally, this is not a pro-life story. It's pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. I believe in women's bodily integrity, and that means I believe every woman should have the right to decide what she does with her body, including as it pertains to conception, pregnancy, and birth. I would be horrified if anyone took any other view away from this piece and deemed it mine. The story is intended as a speculative exploration of just one of the many ways women's hard-won choices are warped and used against them, or simply obliterated altogether, usually in ways we're not supposed to discuss in polite company. Thank you, Felicity, for the use of the female of the species is etc., etc. By the way, this was one of the stories in the aforementioned collection Bread and Circuses, Stories by Felicity Dowker, from Ticonderoga Publications, published in June of 2012. Just a few more words about Ms. Dowker. Along with Alan Baxter and Andrew McKiernan, Felicity is a founder and contributing editor to 13 O'Clock. If Mother's Day is around the corner, find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. 
With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You'd like to touch base with her. She blogs at felicitydowker.livejournal.com. And yes, as always, that will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage at, well, you know where that is, right? Tales to Terrify.com. So there. And ah, another effort nobly made by Miss Antoinette Bergen. Just how many times and in how many ways can I say that Antoinette considers herself to be dark, twisted, sarcastic, pessimistic, weird, demented at all, at all? I've had to say that about a dozen times of her in the past two plus years. So Nettie, I need a new bio from you, hmm? One that does not include lime jello, okay? Okay. Until then, Antoinette Bergen is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate. And she can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen. She would like it if you began following her. And that, too, will be on our homepage. Okay, story number two. It's by Tim Wagoner, and Tim has been a constant here in the nook. We've heard, oh, what, half a dozen or so of his stories over the past several years. Why, you ask? Well, Tim Wagoner is a damn fine writer, that's why. Tim's very short piece, Unwoven, was a memorable part of one of our earliest gatherings here in the nook, Then there was his long way home, and back in show number 39, I think, Tim shared Do No Harm with us, which became instantly one of my favorite zombie tales ever. Tim says he wrote his first story on a stenographer's pad at the age of five. It was a comic book version of King Kong versus Godzilla, and in a few more years, he began selling professionally. Tonight's story is Picking Up Courtney. It was published in 2001 in All Too Surreal from Prime Books and was also seen in Picking Up the Bones. 
And I think in the next 33 minutes or so, you'll see why this story has seen several publication dates. So, hug your chum, close your eyes, and give in to Tim Wagoner's Picking Up Courtney. On the QT, was I staring at you when the incident occurred? Brent looked at the old woman for a moment, trying to decide if he'd heard her right. He chose to play it safe and shook his head. She smiled, relieved. Good. They stood on the sidewalk in front of Haven Falls Elementary. Cars zipped by only a few feet from where they stood, drivers ignoring the slow school zone signs. For the thousandth time, Brent wondered what genius had decided to build a school on one of the busiest streets in town. We bring her here to get her used to the noise. The woman had an accent that he couldn't place. He recognized it as European, but that didn't narrow it down much. She was alone, so Brent wasn't sure who the we she referred to was, but the her was plain enough. The woman held a thin leash attached to the collar of a tiny tan dashhund. The animal's tail was between its legs and it was shivering as if it were the dead of winter instead of early October. Its eyes were moist and Brent thought the dog might start crying any second. She's afraid of loud sounds, the woman said. Every day I come to get my granddaughter and I bring Peanut. The cars, the children, they make plenty of noise and we hope she'll become inoculated? No, acclimated. Yes, that's it. The dog didn't seem to be doing much acclimating to him. The way it was shivering, it looked like its tiny heart was close to bursting. Brent glanced at his watch. 2.24. Six minutes until the bell rang. He wished they'd lived on the bus line. Dropping off their daughter in the afternoon for half-day kindergarten and picking her up again every school day was getting to be a real drag, not to mention cutting into his work. Each day she seems to be a bit better, I think. The dog pressed against the woman's leg and started to whine. This was better? Better than what? I'm sure she'll do fine. It'll just take a little time, is all. He didn't pay attention to his own words. He'd been a realtor for seven years, and in that time the small talk portion of his brain had become so developed it operated on autopilot. The woman grinned, displaying slightly crooked teeth that were yellow at the edges. Yes, exactly so. Brent had never seen the woman or her dog before. He was usually five minutes late to pick up Courtney, sometimes ten. This was the first day he'd managed to get here early. At first he'd congratulated himself on being a good daddy, but now that he was stuck talking with Frau Non Sequitur and the amazing vibrating wiener dog, he regretted it. Brent replayed the woman's strange question in his mind. On the QT, was I staring at you when the incident occurred? They'd been talking about the school's open house last week. It had been crowded and hot as hell. Far too many glassy-eyed parents trying to cram themselves into closet-sized classrooms to stare at enigmatic creations of construction paper and glue. It had been so stifling that Sandy, Courtney and he had ducked out early after making a token appearance in Mrs. Watson's class. Had something happened after they'd left? Perhaps the old woman had fainted from the heat? 
Naturally, she would have been embarrassed by such an incident and confused as well. She might have seen him in the hall earlier and later couldn't recall whether or not he'd been there when she'd fainted. Then again, maybe she suffered from Alzheimer's or something. Or maybe she simply was a loon. It didn't matter. A few more minutes, three to be precise, and Courtney would come running through the school's glass front doors and he'd hustle her into their minivan and get the hell out of here. The Dashoon's whining grew louder. It pushed harder against the old woman's leg as if it hoped it might be able to slip its molecules in between its owners and vanish into her flesh. Brent wondered if he were making it more nervous, if he should excuse himself and walk away, but the little dog yapped then and nipped at the old woman's leg. Not hard enough to draw blood through the woman's slacks, probably not even hard enough to make a dent in her skin. Still, the old woman scowled, her lips contracting into a tight ring of flesh that made him think of a puckered anus. Bad peanut, nasty peanut. Her tone was calm, but her eyes glittered with anger. She began wrapping the leash around her hand, taking up the slack until the black leather strand was taut. Brent thought she would stop there, but she didn't. She continued winding the leash around her hand, pulling Peanut's head upward, baggy skin wrinkling around the collar. The dog's front paws lifted off the ground, dangling almost daintily before it rose onto its haunches, sitting the way Dutch hunts do when they beg. Brent thought she would finally stop there, but she kept rapping, her fingers now starting to redden and swell. Peanut rose onto her feet, then her tiptoes, and then there was a space between her hind feet and the concrete of the sidewalk. Not much, maybe just enough to slide a child's construction paper drawing under, but it didn't matter how much space was between Peanut and the ground, did it? When you're at the end of a noose, and that's what the leash had become, a few inches is the same as a hundred feet. Peanut hung slack, not struggling, oddly calm after her earlier display of terror. The only sign that she was strangling was the way her wet black eyes bulged forth from their sockets. Dark streaks rolled from the corners of those eyes and Brent realized that the dog was crying at last. The bell rang then, snapping him out of his daze. He reached for the old woman's wrist, intending to make her drop the dog. But before he could close his fingers around her arm, she opened her hand, releasing the coils she'd gathered, and Peanut fell back to the ground, back paws first, then front. She didn't gasp, didn't pant for air, but she started shivering again. He looked up at the old woman. She smiled at him as if she hadn't just tried to strangle her dog. What the hell? he started. Daddy! He turned at the sound of his daughter's voice, saw her running down the school's front walk toward him, so beautiful she shone like a star among the crowd of awkward, must-haired kids around her. Lovely child, the old woman said. Then she turned and walked off, heading away from the school. A girl with long black hair broke out of the pack of running, laughing children and jogged in her direction. She got up with the old woman and fell in step beside her, but neither of them spoke. And, Brett noticed, the girl didn't reach down to give the dog a hello pet, didn't so much as acknowledge the animal's presence. A tug on his sleeve. Daddy, what's wrong? Aren't you glad to see me? Courtney gave him the pout which he always called her monkey face. He knelt down and kissed his daughter on the cheek, grateful she hadn't seen the old woman abusing her dog. Course I am, Pumpkin. You have a good day at school? I sure did. He stood, held out his hand. She took it and they started toward the car. What did you do today? he asked. I don't know. I don't remember. It was her stock answer. 
one he usually teased her about, but today he said, that's nice. He watched the old woman, her granddaughter and Peanut, continue down the sidewalk, and again he heard the strange question she asked. Saw Peanut's tear-slick bulging eyes, and without realizing it, he gripped his daughter's hand tighter. The next morning, Brent told his wife he was getting backed up at work and asked if she could pick up Courtney after school. Sandy said she couldn't take off in the middle of the day. He knew that. She had just started back to work at the doctor's office, full-time, only a month and a half ago. She couldn't start asking off yet. They had argued a little, but it didn't go far. Brent couldn't tell his wife the real reason he wanted her to get Courtney was because he didn't want to see the old woman and her dog again. He knew he wouldn't be able to make her understand. Hell, he didn't understand it himself. That afternoon, Brent arrived at the school ten minutes early. He wanted to pick up Courtney and get the hell out of there before the old woman showed up and did something else disturbing. Something his daughter might see this time. He parked at the curb and sat in his van, thinking about why his encounter with the old woman yesterday had so unsettled him. He supposed it had something to do with the death of his uncle. When Brent was nine, his uncle Larry, or Red, as everyone called him, was like a father to him. More so than his real father, who was a salesman and always on the road. His dad never had time to play catch with Brent, teach him how to throw a football, take him fishing... But Uncle Red had time, and even when he didn't, he still found a way to make it. Brent had loved Red, practically to the point of worship. And then one day, Red went to the doctor's for a checkup. The physician saw Red, gave him a clean bill of health, and then Red went out into the reception area, sat down, and waited for his name to be called so he could pay his bill. He never got up again. His heart gave out, the doctor said, and he died instantly. Probably didn't feel a thing as if that were any consolation. Rad had seemed so healthy, so full of life. His death struck Brand as so unfair, so damn absurd, that he had himself a nine-year-old's version of an existential crisis. He questioned whether life had any meaning, if there was any design in the universe, or if existence was nothing more than raw, blind chance. Eventually, he'd come to uneasy terms with his grief, and as he got older, he came to believe that life did have meaning even if people had to make that meaning for themselves. But something about the old woman's crazy behavior had dredged up feelings he thought dead and buried long ago. Feelings that life was utterly random and without purpose. Now here he was, hiding in his van like a frightened child. He kept an eye out for the old woman. How could he not? But he didn't see her. Others' parents got out of their cars, walked towards the school main entrance with the steady, deliberate paces of adults who'd rather not be here but couldn't be anywhere else. He looked at the digital clock on the dashboard, 2.29. He turned off the engine, removed the key from the ignition, and got out of the van. He stayed close to the vehicle for a moment, watching traffic, scowling at the drivers who sped by. Idiots! Didn't they know that in less than a minute the sidewalk was going to be full of kids? Didn't they care? He walked around the van and started toward the entrance. Looking around for the old woman and Peanut without trying to look like he was looking, he didn't see them and let out a relieved breath of air that he hadn't realized he'd been holding. He reached the front doors, nodded to the other parents, mostly moms, standing outside. He didn't know any of them well enough to start a conversation and he didn't feel like trying, especially not after what happened yesterday. He just wanted to get Courtney and take her back to daycare, there was a sign on one of the glass doors. 
We'd appreciate it if parents could remain outside until the bell. Teachers are conducting class until 2.30 and having visitors in the hall are distracting. He frowned. He'd noticed the sign before but had never paid much attention to it. The grammar error annoyed him. He expected better from the school his daughter attended. The bell rang. Several seconds passed and then the doors banged open. Kids wearing and carrying backpacks came flooding out, faces beaming with a tired joy at being free again. Courtney came through the doorway, her Barbie backpack slung over her shoulder at a sassy angle. She looked so grown up. Rand had no trouble imagining her looking much the same when she was in college, sass and all. She saw him, smiled. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Pumpkin. He reached out to tussle her hair, but she gave him a look that said, I'm not a baby, and he withdrew. Five years old, and already she doesn't want me touching her, he thought. He started to ask her how class had gone, though he knew darn well how she'd answer. But before he could, she dropped her backpack at his feet and ran off after a red-haired girl, calling, Christy, Christy! The girl turned, grinned, shucked off her backpack, shouted, You're it! and took off running across the school's front lawn. Courtney followed close behind, both girls alternately shrieking and giggling. They didn't have time for this, Brent thought. He didn't have time. But then again, he didn't want to tear Courtney away from her friend. He hesitated, unsure what to do. He reached up, scratched the dry skin at the side of his nose. An old nervous habit. Three minutes, he decided. No more. He checked his watch to mark the time. He watched the girls play, sometimes following the rule of tag, other times abandoning them entirely just to run and make noise. He envied their ability to be so alive, so holy in the moment. Courtney, who'd been about to tag Christy on the elbow, stopped and looked to her right. Doggy! she squealed and started running. Christy right behind. Brent looked in the direction they were headed, saw Peanut, saw the old woman. They stood in roughly the same spot as yesterday. Peanut shivering against her owner's leg, the old woman smiling as the girls came pounding across the grass toward her. Brent started moving before the girls reached Peanut. He felt an urge to run, but he checked it. He didn't want to alarm the other parents or startle the old woman. It was a cliché, don't make any sudden moves. But that's exactly what his instincts were telling him now, so he walked across the lawn at a measured Goldilocks pace. Not too fast, not too slow, keeping his gaze firmly fixed on the old woman the entire time. Courtney fell to her knees before Peanut, making the poor dog jump, and began rubbing its side. Good dog. You're a good dog, aren't you? You cutie woody woody. Christy started patting the dog's other side, adding her own variations to Courtney's baby talk patter. The old woman looked down at them, still smiling, but there was something about her expression that made Brent's spine go cold and tingly. Nothing overt. It wasn't as if her eyes were wild, her teeth bared in a snarl, froth bubbling forth over her lips. There was just something wrong about it. She said something to the girls, but Brent wasn't in earshot yet. Whatever it was, and it might be any crazy thing, mightn't it? Another non-sequitur, or perhaps a bark of profanity on a Tourette sufferer? The girls didn't hear or chose not to respond. So caught up were they in their doggy love fest. The old woman looked up as he approached and smiled. Brent had no idea what to say to her, but Courtney saved him from having to think of something. Daddy, I want a dog. Can we have a dog, please? We'll see, Pumpkin. 
His reply was as automatic and unthinking as the outgoing message tape on an answering machine. Brent found himself staring at the Dashoon's neck, scrutinizing the hide around and beneath the collar. The skin looked fine, but then it was covered with fur, wasn't it? Peanut seems to like you girls, the woman said. Maybe you could come over to my house sometime and help to give her some exercise, yes? Chase her in the backyard, throw the ball for her to fetch, put sharp little sticks into her behind? Wouldn't that be fun? Brent was shocked. He looked at the girls, but they still didn't seem to be paying any attention to the old woman, thank Christ. That's enough now. Brent leaned down, took each girl by an arm and pulled them away from Peanut. Oh, Daddy! We need to get going, sweetie, and I'm sure your friend does too. He spoke to his daughter, but he kept his eyes on the old woman as they backed away. And this nice lady has come to pick up her granddaughter, and we should let her be about her business. He kept backing away, towing the girls with him. The old woman continued smiling. It was as if her face were made of wax and permanently molded into that expression. The mirror's cracked, you know. That's nice. He kept moving, kept hold of the girls, who were starting to squirm. It always has been, the old woman continued. But now the cracks are spreading, growing wider and deeper, yes? It's only a matter of time before the glass breaks. I really hadn't noticed. Bye now. He turned and led the girls back toward the school. Christie's ride evidently hadn't gotten here yet, and he couldn't bring himself to leave the girl alone with that crazy bitch. He decided that Courtney and he could wait inside with Christie until her mom, dad or whoever came. Besides, he wanted to be near other people. Other people were safe. Other people were sane. Daddy, you're hurting my arm! Courtney whined. Brent didn't loosen his grip, was afraid the girls would take off if he did. He kept his hold until they had passed through the front doors and stood inside the lobby. He turned and peered through the glass, saw the woman looking at him, smiling her wrong smile. Her granddaughter now stood at her side, and there was something odd about her face. The skin was yellow-tinged, and the girl's expression was slack. Peanut was squirming as if in pain, and then Brent saw why. The old woman was grinding the dog's tail beneath her shoe. A little after eleven that night, Courtney woke up, complaining that her tummy hurt. They'd eaten fast food that night, and the greasy glop had made Courtney constipated. Sandy marched straight for the medicine chest, only to find they were out of laxative. So Brent threw on his windbreaker, hopped into the minivan, and headed for the grocery in search of gentle, soothing relief for his daughter. While bellwether wasn't huge, few towns were in southwestern Ohio, it was big enough to have a 24-hour grocery. He parked as close as he could and crossed to the entrance, looking right, then left, keeping an eye out. For what, he wasn't sure. Once inside, he got a cart and steered it into the produce section. He was here for laxative, but Sandy figured, why waste the grocery trip? She'd given him a list of a dozen must-have items that they couldn't get along without for another day. He got bananas, a bag of gala apples, and a single lemon. He had no idea why just one, but he put it in the cart. As he, as he made his way toward the bread, he passed a middle-aged woman whose face looked as if someone had grabbed the corners of her eyes from behind and pulled backward. It was like her picture had been scanned into a computer then stretched horizontally a few clicks. It couldn't be some sort of deformity, could it? Plastic surgery? Maybe a botched facelift? 
the woman noticed Brent staring and scowled, the expression making the distorted, taut flesh of her face bend and twist as if she were her own funhouse mirror. Brent looked away and moved on. In the dairy aisle, he saw a bearded man with a gauze bandage over his left eye. There was a wet patch in the middle of the bandage, and as Brent watched it widened, as if the eye, or whatever was behind the bandage, was seeping something fierce. And it appeared the gauze pulsated slightly, like the skin on top of a newborn's head where the skull hasn't grown together yet. The man looked at Brent, opened his mouth to speak, but Brent hurried on before he could hear what the man had to say. In the pharmacy section, he got a bottle of Philip's Milk of Magnesia, cherry-flavored, and put it into the cart with his other groceries. He reached into his coat pocket and took out Sandy's list. He double-checked to make sure he'd gotten everything. Without thinking, he reached up to scratch the dry skin on the side of his nose and was rewarded with a sharp pain. Damn it! He pulled his hand away, examined the finger, saw it was dotted with blood. Perfect, just perfect. Keeping one finger pressed against his nose, he tried pushing his cart one-handed toward the front of the store where the restroom was. But the cart, though far from full, was too awkward to steer and he said fuck it and left it where it was. He'd come back and get it after he'd tended to his scratch. In the men's room he stepped up to the sink, tore a brown paper towel from the dispenser on the wall and pressed it to his nose. The paper was coarse and his scratch stung, but at least the towel absorbed the blood. He removed the towel, turned it around to a dry patch, and pressed it against his cut once more. He pressed harder this time, hoping to force the blood to clot faster. He looked at his reflection in the mirror over the sink, thought of the old woman's parting words today. But the cracks are spreading, wider and deeper, yes. It's only a matter of time before the glass breaks. He half expected to find a crack in the glass somewhere, but its surface was unmarred and surprisingly clean for a public restroom. He couldn't shake the feeling that the old woman had tried to impart some manner of vital knowledge to him this afternoon. He thought of Stretch Face and Mr. Eyepatch. In a way, they were like the old woman, a glimpse into something that lay beyond the seeming normalcy of the everyday and into whatever was on the other side of the mirror. Brent hoped they'd have to keep Courtney home from school the next day. At this point, he'd be glad to take the time off from work and to hell with the effect on his sales percentage, just so long as he didn't have to go near that school. But come dawn, the laxative had done its job and Courtney felt fine. Brent dropped her off at daycare and then spent the rest of the morning chauffeuring a couple around to look at some houses. They talked to each other, mostly ignoring him. After a while, he became aware of a strange, almost inaudible sound that accompanied their voices when they spoke like the hiss and crackle of radio static, or the electronic noise of a modem trying to connect. He had the sense that this secondary sound he was hearing was their true voices, that they weren't really saying anything at all, just exchanging bursts of white noise. By the time he parted ways with the couple, they still hadn't settled on a house, but he'd picked up a throbbing headache. He'd worked through lunch without realizing it, and now he didn't have time to grab anything eat, not if wanted to be on time to pick up Courtney. He drove to the school doing five miles under the speed limit without being aware of it. He pulled up to the curb, parked and sat, gripping the wheel so tight his knuckles bulged white. He experienced an urge to put the key back in the ignition, turn it, put the van in gear and roar away from the curb, leaving Courtney behind. He'd pick a direction, it didn't matter which one, and keep driving until he ran out of gas. 
He reached up and rubbed the scab alongside his nose and tried to ignore the pounding in his head as he thought. He wasn't going to abandon his daughter, of course. If he did, he would be a bad daddy, and he couldn't bear that. He got out of the van and closed the door. There was the normal chunk of the door shutting, but beneath it was the sound of fingernails raking a chalkboard. Another crack, another glimpse. Stop it, he told himself. Just goddamn stop it. An old lady says a couple weird things, abuses her shivery little mutt, and he ends up doubting his own sanity. Hell, doubting the nature of reality itself. That was the insane part. He lived in a world of rules and structure, of mathematics, of laws, regulations, statutes, custom and convention. The alphabet had 26 letters. There were 365 days in a year, and 30 days had September. September and several other goddamn months. The mirror wasn't correct because there wasn't any dumbass mirror in the first place. The world was the world, and what you saw was what you got. If you wanted meaning, you had to make your own, simple as that. But by God, once you made it, it was real. Right now, his meaning was Courtney, and he was here to pick her up. He headed up the walkway to the front door of the school. He didn't see the old woman around, and he was more grateful for that than he liked. There were no other parents standing outside today. It was a bit nippy out, and he supposed the others had decided to wait in their cars. He glanced at the faded printout he had noticed yesterday. Saw it now, read. Instructions for the autopsy and post-mortem examination of the average kindergartner. What followed were simple step-by-step instructions, accompanied by appropriate full-color diagrams. Brent stared at the poster, willed it to return to normal, but it didn't. He looked away, shivering like Peanut. The bell rang. On one level, it sounded the same as always, but on another, it sounded like jackhammers biting into ancient brittle bone. Along the curb, parents and caregivers got out to meet their little ones. At the same time, as if on cue, the school doors banged open and children poured forth. He watched for Courtney, afraid to see her, afraid of what she might look like to him in his present state. But there she was, looking as beautiful and happy as always, eyes bright, smile wide. She ran over and hugged him, and she felt so good, so normal, that he hugged her back too hard. She made an oof sound and pulled back. She grinned, smacked him lightly on the back of his hand. She said, you're it, and ran off. He called after her, shouted that he didn't want to play, not today, but she kept running across the lawn, crunching leaves, hair flying behind her. He hesitated, unsure what to do. If he gave chase, she'd just run all the faster. But if he didn't go after her, she'd keep running and laughing until she grew tired of the game and he wanted to get out of here right now before... The old woman came strolling up the walkway, Peanut plodding along at her side. She held the dog's leash gently and the Dashoon seemed in good spirits, was even wagging her tail a little, turning her head this way and that to look at all the children gabbing, playing and laughing as they slowly dispersed. He wanted to run, wanted to hide. Instead... He started walking toward the old woman. He managed to keep from shaking, but his forehead was slick with sweat and he could feel it trickling down his face. He met her in the middle of the walkway. She smiled pleasantly and Peanut kept wagging her tail. Look, I don't know what hell is wrong with you and I don't care, but I'd appreciate it if you stayed a fuck away from me and especially from my daughter. You got that, you crazy bitch? He looked for Courtney. Saw she'd hooked up with Christy and they were playing tag now, her slow poke daddy forgotten for the moment. The woman didn't reply. 
She just kept smiling. Her granddaughter walked up, backpacks slung over her shoulder. The old woman looked down at her. Ready to go, dear? The girl didn't respond. Her face was slack, her skin yellow pale, eyes roiling circles of darkness. He had the impression he could poke his finger into the churning inkwells of her eye sockets if he wished. I think Peanut might like to run a little. Should we let her off the leash for some exercise? Sure, Granny, that'd be fun. The girl was normal now, face animated, eyes a rich brown. Go ahead, the old woman said. The girl unhooked the dashun from the leash. For a second, Peanut just stood there, not realizing she was free. Then she took off, tiny legs pumping as she flew across the grass. The granddaughter squealed and ran after the dog. Other kids noticed, shouted, laughed, and also took up the chase. Peanut wove between their legs, avoiding little hands desperate to grab hold of dog fur. Courtney had joined the pack, was at the head of it. Stop, doggy, I want to pet you, she pleaded. She got close, reached out. Her fingertips brushed fur, but then Peanut put on a burst of speed. She zigged laughed, and squealing with delight, Courtney followed. Peanut dashed between two parked cars and out into the street. Brent shouted something. It might have been, no, or look out, but it just as easily might have been an inarticulate cry of horror. Tires squealed, there was a sickening muffled thump, and Peanut came trotting back between the parked cars and onto the sidewalk, looking pleased with herself. Horns honking, kids screaming, parents running into the street. Traffic stopped and drivers got out of their cars, faces frozen in shock. Brand ran into the street, knelt beside the wet red thing that had been his daughter, cradled it in his arms. The old woman was standing beside him. You lied to me, didn't you? She said softly. You were staring at me when the incident occurred. In his mind, Brent answered yes. But what came out of his mouth instead was the sound of shattering glass. Thank you for that, Tim. Every now and then, one just needs a good witch tale. Doesn't one? Of course one does. Since his King Kong days, Tim Wagoner has published over 30 novels and three short story collections. His articles on writing have appeared in Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal, among other publications, and now, of course, in Horror 101, The Way Forward, from Crystal Lake Publishing. Yes? Yes. Lucky students at Sinclair Community College can study creative writing with him also. Ditto those students at Seton Hill University going for a Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction degree. Tim hopes to continue writing and teaching until he keels over, and don't we all, after which he wants to be stuffed, mounted, and placed in front of his computer terminal. You can peek into his mind at his blog, timwagoner.com. That's Tim, W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R dot com. And, of course, that will be you know where. Picking up Courtney, 
was bodied forth for us tonight by Mr. Pim Vandersteen. Pim, 36, lives in Utrecht in the Netherlands. He is a service and emergency phone line operator for the police. I'll bet there are tales to be told there. He says that for over five years, he's been a fan of different science fiction and horror podcasts. Both he and his sweetheart, he says, love falling asleep to the exciting stories out there on the web. There seems to be a conflict there, but I can't quite pick it out. He says, quote, It feels good to do something in return for all the fantastic adventures and suspense that has come out over the years. In addition to all that, Pim has been a musician for 20 years, playing guitar in several rock bands, drums in a folk group, and bass in a Madonna cover band. When he finds the time, he still produces his own music at home. Do a search for Pim Vandersteen, that's V-A-N-D-E-R-S-T-E-E-N, at soundclick.com for some of his music. That'll be also on our homepage. And he gives guitar and ukulele lessons to grade school children and loves the game Rocksmith. And to top it all off, Pim has tried his hand at graphic art during and after the time he attended art school. And he has a selected gallery at DeviantArt, also on our homepage. Well, that, Children of the Night, will be that. One more brief thing before I shoo you off into that good night, and I hope it is a good night. As you may or may not have heard, or as you may or may not have noticed, I've had some health issues pending, hovering or looming are probably better words, and to make sure we continue the show uninterrupted from time to time, I will ask Tales to Terrify's co-editor, Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick, to step in and introduce the stories, host a show or so, and generally to be part of the audible world we share here in the District of Wonders and here in the Nook specifically. You've met Stephen as characters, as the voice of the story in many shows to date, and soon you'll meet him in his own flesh as Stephen Kilpatrick, who will play a larger, at least a more visible, so to speak, part in your weekly dosage of chills and terror. So, now, be off with you. On your way, and just watch out for late-night little lady doggy walkers and danglers. There won't be many, but if there is even one, keep your eyes on the sidewalk. Chart your course homeward. Don't look for cracks, pay no attention to shattering glass, and I'm sure you will have pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.